Welcome to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Last week and this week, we had an opportunity to uh, see a, an introductory video about some different things. Last week, it was talking about what do I believe about God, and this week, it's what do I believe about Jesus Christ. And the reason why I think that there's something powerful about that is because as we're watching, maybe there was something that somebody said that you thought to yourself, you know, I don't know if I would be able to articulate it in that way, but what they said really resonated with me. There's something that uh, they said that I can really agree with. On the other hand, maybe you were watching and it's possible that you winced a little bit. For you, there are some things that you definitely feel and believe about Jesus Christ and you were saying to yourself, well, what they articulated isn't what I would say at all. And the reason why we were saying it's important for us to be mindful of these things is to remember that there is a world out there that has all kinds of different beliefs. And the reason why it's important for us to know what it is that we believe so that we are able to articulate our own faith in a winsome way in order to share what we believe with people. I I was reminded as I watched the videos kind of last week and this week that maybe as an individual and maybe as a church, we haven't done and I haven't done a a good of a job as I could have in sharing my faith with someone else. The reason is because all of us are building our lives on something. Right? We all have a foundation upon which we're building our lives. And, and the thing that we've been trying to say is, is the foundation that you're building your life upon going to be able to stand when the seasons of storm come? Because we know that at some point all of us will face that storm. And so on what are we going to stand What is it that you and I believe? And it's the same thing for our church. As a church, we were saying last week how we have to make sure we know what it is that we are standing upon, that we're building a firm foundation. Otherwise, what might end up happening is it might end up leading towards drift. And I think that's why you and I need to know better what it is that we believe so that we can share with the community around us, with the culture around us in an articulate and a compelling way to be able to respond to someone. Imagine what it would be like if you were to engage with one of those people that we saw uh, and being interviewed. How would you articulate your faith? How would you share? How would you listen well then to be able to share the hope of the gospel? You know, one of the things that I noticed as I was watching, though, is so often, and even in some of the statistics, people are okay with Jesus, right? They're kind of cool with Jesus, cool with God. Where they struggle is with the church. 
right, where people really have a hard time saying, well, I feel like the church is, is so judgmental or they're unsure about what they might believe um, when it comes to the church. And I really believe that what Scripture has to say is still very relevant. It's still very real. It's still very contemporary for this culture in which we live. And so you and I need to know better what it is that we believe so that as we have conversations with people, their curiosity may be piqued a little bit and we would be able to communicate with them the hope of what we believe. And what we said last week is we were trying to give ourselves a foundation, something that we can kind of stand upon together. And we were saying that it's the Apostles' Creed that really functions well as a starting place for us. And so last week we spent some time looking at the first half of the Apostles' Creed together. And we were saying that the Apostles' Creed it wasn't written by the Apostles themselves. They didn't just stand together and come up with lines from the Creed. But what it is is basically a summary of what the Apostles have taught. It doesn't take the place of Scripture. Rather, what it does is it condenses what we believe into a singular statement. And where we left off last week, Jesus had died and had descended. Thankfully, that's not where we end. That in fact, today, we get to pick up with the idea that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, we've already recited it together once, but I thought, you know what, as we're going to be unpacking it together this morning, it's important for us to say, okay, what do I believe? So let's say it again, and I'm going to invite us to stand as we recite it together. But now, I want us to recite this not in a way that's just like, yeah, this is, you know, what I believe and just kind of articulate it like, yeah, I've said this a bunch of times and like, no, I want us to say this with, with purpose and with meaning to say this is what I believe. So let's say this together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. You know, I love the way that where we ended off last week, we get to pick up this morning with this idea that we have, as we have heard and as we have sung together this morning, a living hope. And that living hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. If you think about it, all the other faiths of the world follow a dead leader. 
It doesn't matter if you're Muslim, if you're Buddhist, if you're Hindu. All of their great leaders have died and they have stayed in the grave. It is only Christianity that is unique because when we gather together on a Sunday morning we are not holding a memorial service to a dead leader who died 2,000 years ago what we believe is that Jesus Christ conquered death and he rose again from the dead you know, whenever I gather with family who has lost loved ones, certainly we know that it is a sad time and we grieve together with that family and we surround that family. Losing a loved one is never easy and yet here is what we believe. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14, this is what it says. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers and sisters, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he brings with him those who have fallen asleep. What that means is that death does not have the last word. In fact, what we believe is that it is life that does. Because as Scripture says, as the Apostles' Creed says, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave. Here's the cool thing. As a Christian, every Sunday that we gather together is actually a Resurrection Sunday. We may think about celebrating it just once a year, but every time we gather together, what we are remembering and celebrating is that death has been defeated and that Jesus Christ has rose from, risen from the dead. We don't serve a dead king but a risen one. The passage that we're going to be using together today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be picking up at the 12th verse today. This summarizes so much of what we're going to be talking about together today. Listen to what it says as we pick up at the 12th verse. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, then we would be found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who are also, who have fallen asleep in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ 
has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. This is one of those long, run-on sentences that Paul writes about the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. You know, as I was thinking about it this week, one of the things that I felt like we perhaps needed to clarify here as we study this part of the creed is one of the things that I will often do as I'm engaging people is we'll talk about brokenness, right? Sometimes we may not always use the word sin, and that's because, you know, as you're talking with people and you say, well, you know, do you recognize that you're a sinner? People may be like, well, that's kind of a, a religious term. I don't really know if I buy that whole idea of being a sinner, but, but if you talk about, like, well, do you know that, like, things are broken, right? You know, you look at your life, and, and your life is, like, broken, and it's messed up, and you see that in your life, and you see that in the, in the world around you, and people say, yeah, and, and, and they'll say, well, that, that brokenness is actually sin. Now, here's, here's where potentially saying things like that can actually fall a bit short. Because brokenness and sin is, is not just a problem to be overcome. It's not like you and I can just tinker around with it and, some, and somehow figure out how, how to get by this problem. The sin and the brokenness doesn't just result in putting us to sleep. It results in death. All right? Sin equals death. How loud does an alarm clock have to ring in order to wake a dead man? It's impossible, right? And so when you and I just talk about, oh, well, you know, that's, that brokenness, it leads to death. You, you know it. We were talking about this as a staff this week. If you have a plant around your house that's dried up and dead, no amount of watering is going to bring that plant back to life again. That plant is dead. And where we left off last week, that's perhaps the feeling because Jesus Christ has died and he has descended. And we say that he is separated from God and he's experiencing this hell. What we deserve, the death that we deserve, that separation that we deserve, Jesus Christ has now taken that upon himself. Beloved people, I, I don't want you to miss this. Last week we were saying that it may have felt that, that Satan had won. That he'd crashed our earthly party and that he was now the victor. But here's the truth. It was Jesus who descended to the dead and into hell. And what did he do there? But he preached victory. He preached this victory to those who were dead. And then what did he do? He rose again 
from the dead. He didn't just preach his victory. He showed us his victory. Think about it. Jesus didn't just sneak into hell. He crashed the party. And then he rose again. I, I was thinking about that this week. Um, when Nicole and I got married, it was the south suburbs of Chicago. And uh, the night that we got married and we were there in the reception hall, uh, there was another group, another couple that was next to us. Well, of course, we didn't really know anything at the time, but what we discovered is that this gentleman was a, uh, he played for the San Francisco 49ers. And his wife must have been from the Chicago area, and so they were getting married there. And our kids were so excited, right? Because there were all these NFL foot players next door, and uh, one of our cousins came in, and he's like, I just peed next to a Green Bay Packer, you know? I mean, he's like so excited about it, right? But here was the thing. Only a handful of our people were trying to then kind of sneak into their party. You know what happened? They were crashing our party. It was pretty crazy because the music was, I guess, so much better that people came in. But here was the thing is, they, they didn't just sneak into our party. You knew it because they were all wearing like super colorful zoot suits and they had top hats and things like gloves. And so they just stood out and in the midst of our party were celebrating together with us. And that's the point is that Jesus comes in. He is this ultimate party crasher who brings us victory and who gives us hope. First Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 to 4, it says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Loving people, our hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The grave couldn't hold him. Now here's the good news. If Jesus had simply died and descended, our brokenness would have been forgiven. Our sin would have been forgiven. But it's his resurrection that is what gives us hope. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, death has been defeated. Now yes, you and I, unless Jesus Christ comes again in our lifetime, will have to face earthly death. But what we know is that we do not have to face eternal death. Why? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead just as he said he would. Second, we believe that Jesus Christ ascended, sits, and judges. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he judges the living and the dead. Now, if you thought this was good just a moment ago, this is where it gets even better. Here's the great news, is that the resurrection assures us that death is not final. The ascension then promises us eternal life in heaven. 
This is what gives the gospel its power. I mean, think about it. 40 days after Jesus has risen from the dead, Jesus' followers are together. They're there on the Mount of Olives. And then what happens is they begin to see him ascend into heaven. And in the moment, they're grief-stricken. In fact, it takes two angels who are there to convince them that, no, this is exactly as it said it was going to be. And what we know is that what the ascension proves to us, as we were talking about last week, is that Jesus is no mere human being. He had power over sin, power over death, and the power to bring us with him. His ascension proves that he is God, that he is to be exalted, and Jesus is to receive the same honor and glory and praise that we would give to God the Father. But it's also in his ascension that we are promised the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Hear what Ephesians chapter 1, 19 to 22 says. It says the power, that power, is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Not only did Jesus ascend into heaven with God the Father, but now he is seated at his right hand. Now, what in the world does that mean, and why is that so special? Well, to be seated at the right hand is a place of honor and power and authority. You and I even use phrase like, well, he's a, a right-hand man, or she's a right-hand type of woman. As Al Mohler says in his book about the Apostles' Creed, every throne on earth, every king in authority, every power in the cosmos submits to the reign of the one who conquered the grave. That is how important Jesus is. It's seating at the right hand of God the Father. And then we know that he is our judge and our intercessor. Now I know that sometimes when we think about Jesus as being a judge, we think to ourselves in fear and in worry, Maybe we think, oh my goodness, Jesus is so kind of judgmental, and if God is a God of love, how, how can he be so quote-unquote kind of judgy? But remember what we said last week, that because of our sin and God's holiness, nothing unholy is allowed in God's presence, and so we needed someone to take our place. Now, what and why, why do we need to fear his judgment? We don't have to fear it at all. Because if you are in Christ, this idea of judgment, you have nothing to fear. Romans 8.34 says this, Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died? More than that, who was raised to life, 
is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You know, I've heard it explained this way, that, you know, as God looks down at the world and he sees the sin and the evil and the brokenness, how his heart is both saddened and angered. But instead of simply looking at the earth in wrath, Jesus says, no, Father, look at me. And as the Father looks at the Son, what he sees is grace and mercy and love. It's because Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our intercessor who pleads for us. So yes, while we will all one day have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the pronouncement made over us is forgiven, redeemed. You and I don't need to live in fear. And that leads us to the next part, this idea, the third thing, that we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Spirit. You know, within the Trinity, there, there perhaps is no more misunderstood person of the Trinity than the Holy Spirit. Uh, some people are a little worried about the Holy Spirit. We don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit, right? We'll joke sometimes about churches and denominations where it's like the frozen chosen you know, don't want to get too caught up in the Spirit, get a little afraid. And of course, sometimes you deal with churches, it's all about the Spirit, right? You know, slain in the Spirit, speaking in the Spirit, all, you know, gifts of the Spirit, all the spiritual things. Uh, and, and so sometimes it almost to the, where you feel like, is there, are, have you lost out on the Father and the Son? And really what we want to say is we want to have just a, a, a holistic, healthy view of the Trinity and understanding what each person in the Trinity has done and to be able to say we want to hold up these things. Now, let me share with you a couple of thoughts then. The first is this. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a power. It's not a force. It's not even an it, right? It is a person. So understand that the, it's a person of the Trinity. And as a person, you can actually have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that can convict us of our brokenness, the Holy Spirit that leads us to that place of asking for forgiveness, the Holy Spirit that guards us, that encourages us, that strengthens us, that empowers us to live for God. And here's the thing, remember we were saying that as Jesus Christ ascends into heaven, the, the disciples are, are distraught, right? They're like, oh man, there goes Jesus. What are we going to do? And what does Jesus say in John chapter 16, 7? He says, very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, hard for us to imagine, right? We would think, What's better than Jesus Christ in the flesh? If I had needs, boy, wouldn't it be great just to be able to talk with Jesus? Jesus himself is saying, it's better for you that I'm away because then you're going to get the Holy Spirit. You're going to get this advocate. And what I'm reminded of is this. Beloved people, 
you and I can do a lot of own, a, a lot of good things in our own strength and our own power. Uh, as was evidenced this morning, we've got a lot of talented people at Presby. And I have no doubt that we could draw a crowd, right? That we could gather people simply because of what we do or what your staff does. Like, we can gather all of these people. And my guess is that you in, are pretty gifted, that in your own lives, you could do a lot on your own, that you could accomplish much through your own strength and your own power. But here's the truth. I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I don't want our church to be explainable without the Spirit. Because see, what happens is, is if it's stuff that you and I can do in our own strength, in our own power, then the world would look and our community will look and say, yeah, I could do that in my own strength and power. I, I want to be able to do what only God can do. And to say, God, we want you to move in your strength, in your power, to know that ultimately it is God who is at work. It means I don't want people showing up here because of me. I don't want people showing up here because of you. I want people showing up here because they see God at work here. And that's truly only going to happen if you and I are living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's our prayer every week, that we would become more transparent as leaders so that in the end it is Jesus Christ and His life-giving power through the Spirit that is seen and known and evident in this place. Fourth, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Now, as we were beginning to say last week, whenever we talk about this idea of this Catholic Church, uh, there's a difference. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. There's a lot of confusion that is often, that enters in when we use a word like that. The word Catholic literally just means universal. So if you see capital C, it means Roman Catholic Church. If you see small c, you know, lowercase c, what it means is the universal church. It's why when some churches use the creed, they'll use words like the Holy Christian Church or the Holy Universal Church. But this is what I think is so cool, is it doesn't matter what denomination you belong to. If you profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that salvation is found only in Him, it doesn't matter if you're Presbyterian or Baptist or Methodist or Independent or even Roman Catholic. We are all a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Think about it. From the very earliest time, from Jesus Christ to today, how many generations of people have existed, right? How many hundreds of people have had faith who passed that faith on to somebody else, who passed that faith on to somebody else? Long before there were any denominations that divide us or separate us, it's always been about Christ that has been passed down from generation to generation to you. You are sitting here today on the foundation of Christians 
and the apostles who have come before. That's why we represent a communion of the saints. That's what we're talking about here. Everyone at every point in history who professes Jesus Christ is a part of this universal church and the communion of saints. Ephesians chapter 2, 19 to 20 say it this way, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about this great cloud of heavenly witnesses that are cheering us on as we run the race of life. So often we can think of ourselves as kind of alone on this island of faith, but when we think about it, every person who proclaims Jesus, past, present, and future, are all a part of the communion of saints. And then fifth and last, we believe in forgiveness, in the resurrection, and in everlasting life. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You know, we, we talked about this last week. Don't want to spend a lot of time here talking about Jesus being the one who has forgiven our sin and brokenness. Since we spent a lot of time on that last week, but I do want to say that if we forget to talk about sin, and if we just simply make church all about kind of feel-good theology, we end up missing out on the power and the hope of the gospel, right? So it's only in knowing that we were dead, that we were cut off, that Jesus has risen from the dead. This is where the power of the gospel comes. It's only in knowing our need and our misery that we can truly know the height and the depth and the width of the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, think about it. What does the old hymn say? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. Ah, but he washed it white as snow. Now, the modern take on that hymn adds this line, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Jesus. This is our hope, that we believe in the resurrection of the dead. As we said at the very beginning, our faith is a resurrection faith, but more than just a spiritual resurrection, we believe that one day our bodies will be resurrected as well. Our bodies with all of their aches and pains, these broken and leaky vessels, they will be made perfect when Jesus Christ comes again. And who knows what perfection looks like? Maybe I'll have hair again. Or maybe perfection is baldness and you'll all be bald, right? 
But, you know, think about it. We will one day be made perfect. Listen to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verses 54 to 57, it says, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved people, that is the promise of the Apostles' Creed, that we see how we have been created how we have been saved, how we have been empowered, that we are not alone in our faith, that this life is not all there is. We have the promise of the resurrection and the promise of eternal life in heaven. And that's why I so love the way that the Apostles' Creed ends. Because it ends by saying, Amen. It's a word that literally means, like, so let it be. You know, make it so. All of this idea is like, yes and amen. If you think about it, why would you end with that? It almost makes the creed like a prayer. And in a way, it's what it is. It's saying, Lord, these are the things that I confess. These are the things that I, I believe. And then to be able to come to the end of that and say, Lord, may all of these things come to pass just as you have promised that they would in Scripture, just as you have promised through the apostles and the prophets, just as I believe, Lord, so let it be in me and in the world. I want, I want you to think about what is it that you are building your life upon? What, what are you standing on in life? And when the season of storm comes, what will hold you to that firm foundation? My prayer is that it would be the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of the things that we have studied both last week and this. And my hope is all 